0: Perhaps this admission will label me as a bit of a nerd, uh, but if that's the case, I'll own it. Uh, I enjoy watching a good game of Jeopardy. Yeah, the trivia game that uh, is on TV every night. Some of you maybe watch it. Any other fans in the audience, perhaps... If you know anything about Jeopardy!, you know that on the Mount Rushmore of Jeopardy! fame, there are probably four faces. One is Alex Trebek, of course, but the other three are the three greatest players of all time. Their names are Ken Jennings, James Holtzauer, and Brad Rutter. Now, I was in grade 11 or 12 when Ken Jennings went on his run in Jeopardy!, he won 74 games in a row. Uh, He won a little over two and a half million dollars playing Jeopardy. The guy was super ridiculously smart. Uh, In all of his games, except for 10, the game was over by the time they got to final Jeopardy. No one could catch him anyways, and uh, he won. He also set the record for the most, uh, the average number of clues he got correct in a game. Just razor sharp, this guy. On his 75th game, he was playing uh, two other people, of course. One of them was a woman by the name of Nancy Zurg. And uh, Ken had a, a bit of a rough game. He missed a couple of the daily doubles that cost him $10,000. And when Final Jeopardy came around, he was only winning by $4,400, which was a tiny amount in his standards. And here is the Final Jeopardy clue. I'll give it to you, and you can see if you can get it right. Most of this firm's 70,000 seasonal white-collar employees work only four months a year. Cue the music, and uh, you don't have 30 seconds. Do you know what the answer is? Nancy Zerg wrote it down really fast. She knew what it was. And when she revealed her answer, the answer was H&R Block, a a tax company. She took the lead by $1 over Ken Jennings, and the world held its breath as Ken Jennings' answer was revealed. He was thinking of Christmas deliveries, and so he said FedEx instead of H&R Block. At that moment, I remember watching it, the audience audibly gasped like they could not believe what they had just seen. Nancy Zurg just about fell over, and this made the news around the world that the great Ken Jennings had been taking down. It was a shocking, shocking development as people were so used to seeing him winning. Now, why do I tell you that story at the beginning of this sermon? Well, not because Jesus played Jeopardy or there was a trivia game going on in in the book of Mark, but because I I want you to think of that element of shock or maybe a a shocking thing that has happened in your life where you just could not believe what you just saw because that's how we're intended to feel as we read the story that Mark writes in Mark chapter 7. There's, there's shocking elements all the way through it. And at the end, we're going to arrive at the conclusion that God's grace is shocking. It should shock us that God would extend his grace to us. But there's shocking elements all throughout the story. Where Jesus goes is shocking. Who talks to Jesus is shocking. How Jesus talks back to her is shocking. And then how the woman responds to Jesus is also shocking. We will pick up some of that shock, reading it as 21st century Canadians. But as we enter into this story and see it from the perspective of first century Jewish culture, uh, we will pick up even more shock than we would register on our own. We're in this series called Find and Follow. We're in Mark chapter 7. You'll remember that in the last number of weeks, we've studied the stories where Jesus fed the 5,000, and then Jesus sent his disciples out in a boat, and they were struggling and rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing against the waves and not getting anywhere, and Jesus walks on the water, and he meets them, and he, he reveals himself to them, and he calms the storm and calms their fears. And last week, we read the story about Jesus confronting the Pharisees, and you'll remember it was a harsh rebuke of the Pharisees. Uh, And saying, you guys are too concerned about external rituals and traditions like washing your hands. And you're not concerned about the state of your own heart. And following God is about the heart. It's not about doing all of the external things. So we asked ourselves some pretty tough questions about, well, how am I a Pharisee in the world today? Today's story follows right on the heels of that and actually gives us the proper response to God's grace. Whereas the Pharisees worked to earn God's grace. Disciples receive it, and this woman uh, proves herself worthy of that. So let's take the story as it comes. We'll read the whole thing here, starting in verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. lying on the bed, and the demon gone. (laughs) Bit of a wild story and some surprising elements all the way through. The first detail that we need to notice is where Jesus goes. He goes to Tyre, and we're not really sure why he goes. He, he might go there to rest and withdraw from the demands of ministry to recharge. It seems likely that that's why he went there, but we don't know for sure. Now, when we read about the, the town of Tyre in the Bible, often we read about the towns of Tyre and Sidon. They're kind of connected. They're nearby to one another, and they're not really viewed very positively all the way through the Scripture. Uh, Tyre was in a Gentile region, uh, the province of Syria, Phoenicia, and it was famous as a seaport. In fact, the natural geography of the place lent itself uh, to being a protected port uh, really well. It's said that in Tyre is where people learned to navigate by the stars out on the ocean. Uh, They were a seafaring people. Now, Tyre and Sidon were both towns that had been given to Israel uh, when they took the promised land. Uh, In fact, as Joshua divided out the land, the towns of Tyre and Sidon were given to the the Israelite tribe of Asher. Yet they never took possession of it. So it always was in pagan hands. Uh, The prophets in the Old Testament condemned Tyre in a lot of different places. Uh, In Zechariah chapter 9, for instance, we read these verses in verses three and four. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She'd, she has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea. She will be consumed by fire. They, they were a wealthy people, but they were, they were astray. They were leading people astray. They weren't following God. We, we see that... Um, in the Old Testament, another example of the evil of Tyre, the, the, the kingdom of Israel was split into two after the reign of Solomon, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel was led by a series of wicked kings, the worst of which was King Ahab. And we read in 1 Kings chapter 16 that King Ahab took a wife named Jezebel, who was daughter of the king of, Ty, of Sidon, Tyre in Sidon. So you see this evil influence is, is exerting itself on Israel, and Jezebel was a wicked queen, and there's not a lot, maybe nothing, that's said positively about her in the Old Testament. The point is, the, the place of Tyre was the place of the most extreme paganism that the Jews could ever encounter. Like If they wanted to go to the secular society, they would go to Tyre. Not only that, in, in the um, Maccabean revolt in the second century BC, the people of Tyre fought against the Jews. So not only were they secular, but they were active opposition to the Jews, which led the, the, the Jewish historian Josephus to write this about them. He said, they are notoriously our bitterest enemies. And yet Jesus goes there. So for a first century Jew, this is a shocking detail. Why is Jesus going there of all the places he could go? Now, this wasn't the first time Jesus had wandered into Gentile territory in Mark. In Mark 5, he did the same. But the Jews would have raised an eyebrow at this and said, what is Jesus doing? In the last story, Jesus declared all foods as clean. Now he's going to a region of people that they deemed as unclean. What's he going to do there? So that's the first shocking detail, the place that he goes. The second shocking detail is the kind of person that comes to Jesus. Now, Matthew's account of this same story says this woman was actually more persistent than we read about in Mark. That she was pleading and pleading with Jesus and the disciples wanted to send her away. But finally she got an audience with Jesus to to make her case. You know, she's a, a, a typical mama bear here, right? Her daughter is struggling under the opposition of an evil spirit. And so she advocates for her child. She stands up for her and says, This isn't right, and I need to do whatever I can do so that my child will be healed. So she comes to Jesus and she pleads, and she's a model for all of us as parents who need to bring our children to Jesus over and over and over and over again and ask that Jesus would do his saving work in them. But she has three strikes against her before she even opens her mouth. The first strike is that she's a woman. She's a woman in a patriarchal culture. It was said that the testimony of four or five women was equal to the testimony of one man in court in those days. And so she had no right or place in society to go and approach Jesus. It was shocking that Jesus would even talk to her. Strike one is she's a woman. Strike two, Mark tells us she's a Greek, which means she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. Jewish people shared the prejudice that Gentiles were defiled, unclean, just by being Gentiles. They didn't have to break any of God's laws to become unclean. They just automatically were unclean because they weren't Jews. Remember we talked last week how Pharisees divide and create clear boundaries between who is us and who is them? Well, Gentiles were the them. They were unclean just because of Who they were. And then finally, Mark tells us that she was a Syrophoenician, which remember that the cities of Tyre and Sidon, what we just said about them, that they were enemies. So she's a woman, she's a Gentile, and she's an enemy. Three strikes against her. And yet she seeks out Jesus. Now, when we get to verse 27, the shock sets in a little bit more because uh, Jesus' response to her feels really abrupt and impolite. Uh, I remember, as a youth pastor, I did a, a series of talks one time with the youth called "The Not So Warm and Fuzzy Jesus," and they might have been the most memorable—the ones the kids remembered the most—because we think about Jesus and we often think he's just so nice and mild-mannered and polite and kind and compassionate, and and we kind of make him like a typical nice Canadian in our minds, like just a nice kind of guy. But when you read the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus said, I mean, he is all of those things, of course, but. He's also at times confrontational. He calls people out on sin. Uh, He doesn't hesitate to tell it like it is. Of course, he has the authority to do so because he's the son of God. But sometimes he can come off as a little rough, a little rougher than we would like to think of him, usually. This is one of those stories If you want to read this this response, and and this is what Jesus said, first let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. He's calling her a dog. If you want to read this from a, a critical and negative perspective, you might even think that Jesus is being racist here. Now, I don't think Jesus is actually being racist here, and there's some reasons why. So let's unpack this answer Um, and, and how we can think about it. Now, one of the things we have to say when we read this is that we don't see Jesus saying it, and we don't hear him saying it. So some commentators actually soften this a lot by saying there was a twinkle in Jesus' eye and a smile on his face as he said it, like he was almost teasing her. I think that's maybe going a little bit too far but we don't know how Jesus said it or what he was looking like when he said it. More than half of communication is nonverbal and we don't get any of the nonverbal clues here. The second thing that that might help maybe soften this a little bit is the word that Jesus uses for dog here. Now, you dog lovers can plug your ears for a moment. In Jewish and Greek culture back then, dogs were not looked upon favorably. Uh, They were um, dirty, dirty, They just scrounged around for food. They were a nuisance. I I wonder if maybe they thought about dogs the way that we think about coyotes. Like you you see them around. uh, They get into things you wish they wouldn't get into. uh, But they're there. Uh, To have a pet dog was, I I don't want to say unusual, but it wasn't super common. Not like it is now. So when Jesus says dogs, he doesn't use the Greek word for the stray dogs that are kind of annoying. He actually uses the Greek word for puppy. Or perhaps for a household pet. So some commentators then read that and say, well, Jesus is, is being gentle in how he speaks here. Uh, and, and maybe we can think about it that way. But I, I want to be a little careful that we don't soften this more than we need to because Jesus is making a strong point to this woman. And he's making it for a particular purpose. So the, w- one of the, the things we need to, to recognize as we read this point is that Jesus' mission was first to the Jews. This is clear in, in everything that's written about Jesus. Um, sometimes this is called the scandal of particularity. And when we think about the Old Testament and the scandal of particularity, we think about how Jesus chose one nation, Israel, and by extension didn't choose all of the other nations. But the purpose of this nation was to be a light to these other, other nations. So we read in the call of Abraham, In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, the nation of Israel, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Did you catch the last part? I will bless you, but so that you will bless all of the other nations on the earth, But it started with Israel, and Jesus took this upon himself and said, I'm starting with Israel, I'm starting with the Jews. So Jesus took 12 disciples, which mirrored the 12 tribes of Israel. He sought to restore the nation of Israel to their purpose. He, he went to them first to show them that he was the true prophet, priest, and king, that he was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures, that he was the true fulfillment of the temple. He was showing the Jews first. Now, there was exclusivity of mission. He went to the Jews first, but there was not exclusivity of salvation. Salvation extended to all people. We see this as Jesus says, first the children must eat the bread. First the Jews must be fed. But that implies that there's a second, that there's more to be had, that the Gentiles will have their fill as well. I mean, the Old Testament predicted this in a lot of places. The Old Testament stated that other nations would would come to faith. But the Jews at the time didn't have that perspective. Especially the Pharisees were too concerned about drawing lines between us and them. Not very concerned about being a blessing to the world. Rather, keeping the blessing for themselves and trying to protect it rather than sharing it. So Jesus would declare this mission to the Gentiles in the Great Commission. He'd say, go to all nations. Go to all people, baptizing them and teaching them. And then the church would walk this out. In the book of Acts, you see this clumsy and chaotic and messy way in which the Gentiles are included in the church. They didn't get it quite right or, or, or they didn't quite do it very cleanly, but eventually they welcomed the Gentiles into the church. But Jesus models for them going to the Gentiles in this story. But he doesn't make it easy on the woman. He throws this obstacle in the way and saying, you're like a dog waiting for the scraps under the table. You're not one of the children sitting in the seats around the table. You're not a Jew. And he throws this little obstacle in their way, just like he threw an obstacle in the way of the Pharisees by saying, hey, you're you're hypocrites. Your hearts are far from me. Though you worship me with your actions, your heart isn't in it. So he throws an obstacle in front of them. Will they pursue Jesus? Will they rise up in faith and pursue Jesus? Or will they give up? Well, the same obstacle uh, is thrown in front of the woman. You're not one of the chosen people of Israel. It's a shocking answer, really. But the response the woman gives is is equally shocking. She says this Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. (laughs) It's quite a fascinating answer. Scholars debate here did she pass a test or did she win an argument? Did she argue Jesus into, you know, acquiescing to her demand or did she pass a test that Jesus had placed in front of her? Honestly, it might be a little bit of both but I think it's probably more of the first that she passed a test. Jesus had put the obstacle in front of her and she rose up in faith to meet it. Now, notice she doesn't try to argue with Jesus here. She she doesn't tell Jesus what to do She she doesn't say, Hey, Jesus, I, I read on Twitter that you healed a demon possessed man in Gentile territory back in Mark 5, and so you should do the same for me. She doesn't flash her credentials in front of Jesus, but she engages him in a conversation about his mission, and she exercises great humility. There's a a book on my desk I'm excited to read. I I don't know if I can recommend it to you yet because I've only read the preface. But the book is called The Death of Expertise. And it talks about how in our world today, there's so much information available to all of us that we can think of ourselves as experts when we're really not, which means the people who really are the experts are actually kind of pushed aside. And we can ignore their advice if we want to because we think that we are the experts. Okay, there's an example in the preface of a, a, a parent, parents who had a, a young child who needed uh, or had a, a medical problem. And a risky surgery was one of the options. And they went to their doctor and the doctor said, no, that's not a safe surgery to perform on your child. There's other things that we should pursue. And the parents said, well, we've done our research and we believe this is the right course of action. So we're going to find a doctor that will do the surgery for us. So they found another doctor who did the surgery and gravely injured the child in the process. Now, Doctors sometimes make mistakes, of course, but it's an example of how we can use Google and think that we're experts on all kinds of things. I mean, I do this all the time when I'm watching the Canucks play. Uh, You know, I've played hockey until I was 17, up until junior B, which is many levels below the NHL, but somehow that qualifies me to speak to the television every time the Canucks are playing, telling them what to do. Never mind the fact that the players on the ice are some of the best in the world, getting paid millions of dollars to do what they do, and the coaches on the bench uh, have been involved in hockey longer than I've been alive, and have all kinds of strategy and and, uh, expertise that I know nothing about, but yet when they're on the power play, I will still yell, shoot at the TV. Because clearly that's what they should do. I'm the expert. I'm telling them what they should do. It's one reason why I, I found myself uh, a little hesitant uh, to speak into uh, matters of epidemiology and vaccines and things like that. I mean, I could find articles on the internet that tell me the things that I want to hear or I could do my investigation that way, but I've never studied the topic in school. I don't know what kind of public health uh, orders would be helpful in this kind of a time to, to curb a pandemic. So I think there's a humility we need to exercise when we speak about about things like that. And this is what the woman understands really well in this story. She says, you're right, I'm not an expert. I don't belong to the nation of Israel. In fact, I have nothing really that I can present to you other than a need. And I'm recognizing you as the expert Jesus. You are the one who tells me what I can do and what I can't do. You are the one who is the Lord over all creation. You are the authority in this situation and I am not. And so I'm casting myself upon your grace because I have nothing on which to stand before you. Remember, one of the main themes Mark wants us to to recognize in his book is the identity of Jesus. And the second is what it means to follow him. She, she aces both of those things in this story. Do you know that this woman, this, this uh, Gentile woman from Tyre, is the only person in the book of Mark who refers to Jesus as Lord? The only one. Peter will have a moment of clarity in chapter 8 where he declares that Jesus is the Christ. But that's a, a, an understanding that doesn't last very long in the story, actually. The other person who recognizes Jesus for who he is, is the Gentile centurion who watches Jesus die on the cross. He says, surely this man was the son of God. Two Gentiles in Mark rightly identify who Jesus is. The disciples spend all of this time with him. And yet in in chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus looks at them and says, are you still so dull that you don't understand who I am? and yet this woman has a a two-sentence interaction with Jesus, and she gets it. This is Jesus. This is the Lord. This is the one with the authority and the power to do something about my problem. She gets it. And then she exercises humility as she follows. Jesus has fed 5,000 Jewish people just a little bit earlier, who didn't get it. And yet now she's talk, he's talking to a Gentile woman who's satisfied to eat the crumbs on the floor because she knows that Jesus is the bread of life. Tim Keller says her response might have sounded like this. All right, I might not have a place at the table, but there's more than enough on that table for everyone in the world, and I need mine now. Keller says, this is rightless assertiveness. She had no rights, but she still was assertive. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. Okay, that's what the Pharisees say. Lord, you owe me because I'm so good. I've worked so hard. I've done so many good deeds. She's not saying, give me what I deserve based on my goodness. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve based on your goodness. Give me what I don't deserve based on your goodness, and I need it now for my daughter. That's the right approach to take when coming to Jesus. And it differentiates Christianity from any other religion. There's a story of C.S. Lewis who was at a comparative religion conference one time. And there was a group of people in a room discussing the unique contribution that Christianity made to religions. And they were having a tough time. Someone said, well, maybe incarnation. And someone else said, well, no, another religion has that. Or maybe it's resurrection. And, well, no, other religions claim that as well. And C.S. Lewis walked into the room and found out what they were talking about. And he said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. It's the fact that God would extend love and mercy and forgiveness to you and to me who don't deserve it. There's, there's no working that needs to happen in order to achieve that. I, I don't have to accomplish this checklist of things. I, I don't have to follow this specific regimen in order to earn the grace of God. He offers it freely to those who will come to him in faith. This is a unique part of Christianity. It's the gift of grace. It's the shocking Gift of grace. Because when you and I will look at each other rightly, when we will examine our hearts as Jesus urged the Pharisees to do, we will discover that we have no right to approach God. We have nothing on which to stand. We have no goodness on which to make a claim that Jesus should forgive us, that Jesus should be good to us, that Jesus should even listen to us. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, we were reconciled to him. So here's the question that confronts us as we close. And if we've read this story correctly, we will experience a little bit of shock in our minds. And so this question confronts us. The question is, are you a religious Pharisee Or are you an unworthy dog? (laughs) Are you a religious Pharisee or are you an unworthy dog? In other words, who are you in this story? We talked last week, a helpful principle of biblical interpretation is to read the story from the perspective of every person involved. And where we see ourselves best is actually in the woman. At least in her position before Jesus. Hopefully we see ourselves in her, in her response as well. Austin Gentry says, If we put ourselves in the shoes of the Gentile women, I think we will discover another truth that's very practical to our own lives. Quite likely, it's only until you realize that you have no leverage in your position before God that you'll finally begin to hear and understand his voice. Just like the Gentile women who had nothing to offer Jesus, but leaned on his grace alone. That's us. We come with nothing to offer. And the fact that Jesus would offer us his grace, his unmerited favor, favor that we have not des- deserved or earned, that's when we understand Jesus' grace. See, there's, there's two ways, says Tim Keller, that we can fail to make Jesus our savior. The first is to be a Pharisee, to be too proud, to have a superiority complex. In fact, if God's grace is not shocking to you, Perhaps there's some of that within you. Some of this superiority, some feeling of pride that you earn it somehow. The other way to fail to make Jesus your Savior is to have an inferiority complex. To be so self-absorbed that you say, I'm so awful that God couldn't love me. This isn't the right response to Phariseeism, to go from superiority to inferiority. The right attitude is displayed by this woman to say, There's nothing about me that, that makes me good enough for the God of the universe, but I will cast myself before Him in faith and ask Him to forgive me, ask Him to deal with the things that I'm dealing with for me, because He has the power. Lewis Smedes writes about this inferiority. He says, uh, guilt was not the problem as I felt it. What I felt was a blob of unworthiness that I could not tie down to any concrete sin that I was guilty of. What I needed more than pardon or forgiveness was a sense that God accepted me, that he owned me, that he held me, that he affirmed me, that he would never let me go, even if he was not too impressed with what he had on his hands. Friends, God offers that acceptance to you if you will come to him in faith. And when we come to him in faith, we see that his grace is shocking. (laughs) Because we don't deserve it. And it leads us to the kind of gratitude that, that makes us put our hand to the work then. Remember the Pharisees put their hands to the work to try and earn God's favor Now we work hard at the Christian life because we know that we have received something that we didn't deserve. And because we're so unbelievably grateful, we will do whatever it is the Lord asks of us. So I'd like to close with this prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. I'm going to put it on the the screen for you so that you can say it aloud at home if you're comfortable. This prayer beautifully outlines the attitude that we ought to have as we approach God. Pray it aloud with me, if you will. We do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy.